chapter 3 of Lamentations, 19 through 24. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The word of the Lord. I've heard it said that Western Christians can't lament, that they've lost the ability to lament, to grieve, to mourn. It's a common thing that you hear in certain circles. I don't know if you agree with that. Do you agree with that, that, that one of the marks of the Western church, of the American church, is the inability to really be sad and to grieve and to mourn? Anybody agree? Some agree, some don't agree? Yeah. It depends on a church. It depends on a, on a person, of course. There are plenty of people, plenty of Christians that mourn and lament and, and do it well. Uh, but if you think about our services, kind of the typical evangelical service, uh, Confession of sin is not prominent, if present at all. We prefer kind of upbeat songs, typically. When you go on a website to check out a church, you would see people who are smiling, happy, right, usually. That's a stereotype. Of course, I understand not every church uh, conforms to that. But I think there is something to this idea that in our culture, in our Western culture, in our Christian culture in particular, we are not good at lamenting. We're not good at being sad. When somebody cries in public, that makes most people uncomfortable. And we try to comfort that person to stop them from crying, right? We don't really want that to go on. It makes us uncomfortable. But when you look at Scripture, you see many, many passages that are sad and they're laments. They're passages that express this deep sorrow. And today we're looking at the book of Lamentations, which is one such passage. Let me uh, give you some background in Lamentation before, before we try to learn from this book and a particular passage in this book of what it means to lament well. How do we grieve well? It's sort of my central question this morning. But let me give you some background to Lamentations. Lamentations is a collection of melancholy dirges. It's really a book of funeral songs. That's how it reads. That's how it sounds. Uh, this is something that is read even now in, in Jewish synagogues at least once a year to reflect on the destruction of Jerusalem. The book is written to... to to express the sorrow of losing your city, of losing your temple, of losing your culture, of losing your national identity. And it was written right after Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Babylon was the big empire of the time, and they finally, after a long siege, took the city and actually, actually destroyed the city. And this happened in uh, 587 B.C. 
Now, when, when I say they actually destroyed the city, I, I mean it quite literally. Most of the time when you read history and a city gets sacked or a city gets destroyed, really what they mean is people just came through and robbed the city and, and took whatever they wanted and then they left. Well, in this case, this was a little different. Babylonians were pretty serious about their enemies and what they did with them. They actually destroyed the walls of the city. They actually destroyed the temple. They took everybody out of the city, and, and they either killed them or they took them into exile to Babylon. So this was a dramatic event in Israel's history. And, of course, the people are processing that, and they know that this is the Lord's doing. The Lord is somehow involved in this. And this comes as his discipline to the people who had turned away from him and forfeited their right to stay in the land of, of promise. In the Hebrew Bible, Lamentations is called the book of how. The book of how, because several chapters start with how. This is why we need children's church, so volunteer people. Just, I just want to make a public announcement as you're, as you're listening. That's why. But we love, we love that the kids are in church. When you think about the book and, and the structure of it, several chapters start with the word how. And the idea is that it's reflecting on this, on this reality of how much, how much the city is suffering under God's discipline. There's an interesting way in which the book is written, and I'm going to give you a little bit of that. I don't want to get too technical, but every chapter has 22 verses or 22 sections of verses. That's on purpose because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And most of these chapters, except for chapter 5, are actually acrostics, and so they correspond, every line corresponds to a letter in the alphabet. So as you read it, it starts with A and B and C, and it goes all the way to Z. And the question is why? Why does the poet, why does the songwriter put it in, in this way? Well, he puts it in this, in this way to tell us that not one aspect of our loss is ignored. From A to Z, all the aspects of our loss and grief are included. And at the same time, that no aspect of our loss from A to Z is left unredeemed by God. So everything is covered, and everything is given hope. Everything is redeemed by God. So this book is a compilation of songs of sorrow, and it teaches us how to lament well. So I'm going to give you my big idea, okay, and then we'll, we'll get into the text itself. My big idea is that our grief must be marked by honesty and hope. My, my idea is that our grief must be marked by honesty and hope. Just like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Christians do not grieve as others who do not have hope, who have no hope. So the idea is that as we grieve, we grieve, we really grieve honestly, but we also are hopeful in our grief. So that's my main point. Let's work through this. My outline is very simple. I want to look at our loss first because all grief is caused by loss. Secondly, let's look at what we gain by grieving well. And finally, we'll look at Christ's loss and gain on our behalf. I'll, I'll do a little bit inside baseball here. In, in pastoral ministry, one of the burdens 
And I would say, and I want to be very clear on this, one of the privileges is the ability and the awareness of the degrees of suffering that people go through. It's a burden because when you hurt with people and you are involved in meaningful relationships, it's hard to see people hurting. It's just hard. But it's a privilege because pastors get to be there when people hurt, and you get to come in in the aftermath of a tragedy. You get to be in the midst of a long-term season of suffering, and you get to help maybe in some small way, but you also get to observe how certain Christians suffer well. So as pastors, we get to grieve with people. And so when I talk about grief, when I talk about loss this morning, I want to make sure that you hear my heart in this. I in no way want to make light of any loss that you have experienced. Any loss is meaningful, is painful, and requires a time of grieving. In this, I look around at this very congregation Some of you have lost spouses. Some of you have lost children. Some of you are dealing with broken relationships right now. Some of you are grieving expectations you had for a child or for your marriage. Some of you have lost jobs or houses. Some of you have lost your health, and that has changed your life. Now, how do we deal with such real losses in life? The first thing that Lamentations teaches us is that we do not minimize our pain. We don't attempt to move past it too quickly. We don't hide it. I mean, the whole book is just raw emotion. And if you haven't read it, we just read a passage that is the most encouraging from the book this morning, because that's what I'm going to focus on. But if you haven't read the book of Lamentations, go this afternoon after church and read it. And it is incredibly honest in the way pain and loss are described. Now look at how the book begins in verses 1 and 2 of the first chapter. He begins by saying, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. There's a bunch of people, and now they're they're gone. It's just empty. How like a widow has she become? She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. This is the bitterest kind of weeping is in the night. Nobody else knows. With tears on her cheeks, among all her lovers... She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. You you must feel just the honesty of of this expression. And then in chapter 2, verses 11, and then I'll jump to 13. 2.11, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Now this is an expression of 
utter despair. This, this observer, he's looking at the desolate city destroyed by Babylon, and he says, what, what can be done for this? This is, it's, it's over. Just, just wasted. I, I love the word ruin that is used here. It's just, it's just ruins. Lives are ruined. Society is ruined. There's no nation left. There's no temple. God is not there. All of that is in ruins. Now, these are real losses that are to be mourned. And Scripture is full of such laments. They're not often preached on, I grant you. But Scripture is full of psalms like that. There's a lot of stuff in both the Old and the New Testament that are they're sad, sorrowful passages. According to the Bible, we are supposed to grieve. We're supposed to honestly address the losses in our lives. Nancy Williams, whose book on contentment, our women's Bible study, I think they just finished. This was the summer Bible study. She says, Troubles and trials do not bounce off, bounce off us as though we are made out of wood. We are human beings made in the image of God, so we grieve. This is not wrong. It would be a red flag if we didn't grieve or didn't register pain when we meet with a serious loss. We are not Stoics. We are Christians. What Williams is saying is that it is normal for us to grieve when we lose something or someone. And if we don't grieve, that's a red flag. Something is wrong with us if we're not responding in pain to a loss in our lives. And then she says, we're not Stoics, we are Christians. Now, you may remember from history or philosophy classes that Stoics were Greek philosophers, and one of their main tenets of their worldview was that you are to work towards indifference to whatever happens in your life. So indifference, emotional indifference, was a virtue that they promoted. In other words, if something good happens, you shouldn't feel any pleasure, they taught. Something bad happens, you shouldn't feel any pain. And this is the only way to live. This is the only way to keep your mind clear and to be able to reason. This is what they taught. And Williams is saying, we are not Stoics. We are Christians. Christians are different. Our worldview is not like that. And yet many of us, many of us functionally are Stoics. And we would even say this is the Christian way. This is the spiritual way to deal with loss. You know, the, the old British ideal of the stiff upper lip, right? I won't cry. I won't feel anything. I'm just going to carry on. I'm going to push through. So many of us Christians would say that's the right approach to suffering. You don't feel anything, or at least you pretend you don't feel anything. You don't show weakness. You don't cry. Christians don't cry because we're supposed to be happy. And yet, we're not happy. We're just emotionless and indifferent. And so that has crept into the church. You know, for many of us, this is how we were taught. This is how you respond to loss. You don't grieve. You don't mourn. You don't lament. You just push through. Now, that's, that's what Stoics do. That's not what Christians 
are supposed to do. This is not Christianity. You see, Christians understand, we understand that we are made in God's image. And thus we grieve as God grieves. As you read the scriptures, there are so many instances of God engaging emotionally with a loss and grieving, weeping, hurting. And so for us to be consistently Christian and not to give in to the Stoicism or any other worldview that will tell us you don't feel, just conceal it, don't feel it, just get, get through it, that, that's not the Christian way. And so for us to be consistently Christian, we need to affirm that we are made in God's image and God feels and God grieves. So we grieve because our God grieves. You see, we feel because our God feels. We weep because our God weeps. And we're made in his image. We're supposed to reflect him. And if I don't weep at a loss in my life, I'm not reflecting who I am according to God's design. I get no points with God when I just persevere and push through and say, God, I know this is really hard, but I will not give in to this temptation to cry. This gives me no points with God. God says, you're foolish. I made you differently. You're supposed to cry because I cry. So let me gently, but hopefully clearly, encourage you to grieve honestly. Friends, weep for your children who have walked away from the Lord. It is not okay. It's not fine. You're not supposed to pretend everything is okay. You're supposed to weep over them. You're supposed to grieve that they have abandoned Christ. It's a big deal. It's supposed to touch you. Please don't pretend everything else is going well in their lives. Weep over the broken relationships in your life. Your marriage fell apart. It's bad. It's not okay. Don't make it sound like it's just a new season in your life. Weep over it. This is, this is, whatever the causes are, it's appropriate to grieve such a loss. Weep for those who you have lost to cancer, those you have lost to suicide, those you have lost to car accidents, Weep because you look at your life and you're saying, my marriage is not what it's supposed to be. I had expectations, but it's not what it is. Weep because you look at your child and you said, this is not what I dreamed for her. That's not how I imagined her life. Weep over your illnesses. It is, it's not normal in God's world to be going through some of the things you're going through, and yet this is absolutely our reality. And because it's real, and yet at the same time, it's not how it's supposed to be, at that intersection, we weep, and we cry, and we grieve, and we mourn, and we lament. If you came to Sunday school this morning, we had a, a conversation with Carla Shepard, the social worker from Armstrong Elementary, where we we're getting more and more involved. And she talked about her community, and she talked about her school that has 400-some kids and over a hundred of them are homeless. Why would we not weep over this? We should weep over our community and look and see how many kids are struggling, how many kids are hurting. 
To grieve means to grieve honestly. If you really want to grieve, you don't pretend. You just, you just weep and you lament. To grieve honestly also means to consider our own sin in that loss. Sometimes, and I want to be, again, I want to be so clear on this, and please, if you leave and you felt like I was not clear, please talk to me. I'd, I'd want to clarify that. Some losses in your life are caused by your sin. That's true, okay? You made a bad decision. You were self-absorbed. You treated somebody poorly. You didn't do a good job at your work. And there are things that happen because of that. There's consequences to that. And you can look back and you say, my sin caused it. And part of grieving honestly is considering that and repenting. And that's the repentance unto life. Because you're changing through that. You're growing through that. In uh, verse 18 of our text in chapter 1, 118, the singer says, The Lord is in the right. The Lord is right. It's fair. It's just. For I have rebelled against his word. And this may be you this morning, where you look at your life and you're saying, my life is in ruins because I have rebelled against God's word. And part of the honest grief we go through, we look at that and we admit that and we repent and we change. But this is where I want to be very clear. Many of your situations, many of your losses in life are not caused by your sin. There are other factors at play here. It could be someone else's sin. It could be the general brokenness of the world we live in. It could be a number of things that can affect you and take something from you. And we grieve over that. But part of honest grief is looking into it and saying, okay, what is causing that? And then also asking, how is God involved in this? Because we also, as we grieve, we realize that God is doing something here. There may be God's discipline here. And so we need to develop this Godward grief. And this is in our text. Over and over again. This is, you can't escape that if you just read the book through. Over and over again, the singer is looking to God. And, and he says things like, look God and see what I'm dealing with. Look and see my affliction. For example, in verse 20 of chapter 2, 2.20. It says, Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? I mean, he's, he's inviting God to help him interpret what's happening. Because he knows he can't really process it on his own. So we are to go to him in our grief. We are to go to God with our questions, our complaints, our pain, our frustration, our disappointment. And we need to pray and say, Look, God, I am hurting. I'm grieving. I've lost someone. I've lost something. And we develop this Godward grief. Look, God, my spouse is gone. Look, God, I lost my baby. Look, God, I don't know if I can get through this. Look, God, what about the dreams that I had for my child? Look, God, my life is ruined. I mean, these are the kind of prayers that need to happen if we are to learn to grieve well and to grieve in the way that Scripture calls us to do that. I have a friend who himself has gone through and is going through significant suffering because of the, some of the medical struggles with his child. 
And, and I remember talking to him, and he was saying, he was like, yeah, we don't grieve well in our churches. He's saying, we don't kind of stay there. We may talk about a problem, but then we're very quick to provide a solution. So we may mention pain, but right away we're talking about how to get rid of it. And he was just saying how it would be good just to stay there. Like in a sermon or in a worship service, just be in your grief. And just, just lament, just mourn. No solution. And I hear him. And I think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. That we're not allowing each other to grieve long enough and well enough and deeply enough. I think that's true. But this is where I disagreed with him. I said, but we can't stay there, ultimately. We can't. Now, we need to stay there longer than we're staying, typically. But ultimately, you can't get stuck in there. And so I felt like, because he was talking about preaching and how in many of our sermons we're quick to run to Christ, and he's saying we need to spend more time on, on grieving. And I said, I agree with you. We need to spend more time, but we need to get to Christ. Because otherwise there's no hope. And what can I offer to myself, to my congregation, if I don't offer Christ? And so this is where we need to look at the hope of what happens when we grieve well. So there's the honest grieving. And I want to emphasize that. And I don't think we do that all that well. But yet, there's also hopeful grieving. So as we grieve honestly, as we turn to God, as we develop this Godward posture, hope comes. I want to look at this one passage that we read, uh, that Jim read for us, as a way to gain that hope. There's several things here for us to learn of how we are to grieve with hope. Now, if you read the commentaries on the book of Lamentations, you will find that the scholars point out that the book is constructed in a particular way. The technical term is chiastic. It's a chiastic structure. And what that means is that first chapter corresponds to the last chapter, second chapter corresponds to the fourth chapter, and the third chapter is kind of the center of the book. So it's almost like a sideways V. And you see that a lot in Scripture, where there's parallels, but then it converges on this one idea. And when scholars look at that, they would say, well, we know what the point of the book is. We know what the emphasis is. We know what he wants us to take away from this. Because at the center, at that, that, that tip of the point of chiasm, is the section that we read. And I'll read again verses 22 through, through 24 of chapter 3. And this is familiar and precious to most of you here. 3, 22 through 24. And this is the center of the book. This is the real message of hope that is offered in the midst of honest grief. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I'm sure we can take some time by sharing stories of how this verse, how these verses have been used by God in our lives. These are life-given verses to many of us. This is a passage that describes what we gain, even in the midst of loss. 
And as we grieve well, hope comes in. Because right before these verses, there's a declaration, I have no hope. And then he says, but this I call to mind. And he refocuses and hope comes into his heart. So I want to give you three quick things that produce hope in the midst of grief. Number one, this is from these verses. Number one, we learn that our pain has a purpose. We learn that our pain has a purpose. That's number one. Steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness. This is covenant language. He's reaching back to the way God has revealed himself to Moses. When God says, I am this kind of God. I am compassionate. I am faithful. This is who I am. I'm merciful. And so he's reaching back into the very covenant relationship that God has with his people. And as he describes God in this way, hope comes. And hope comes from this idea that if God is in a covenant relationship with us, covenant means agreement, commitment. God has committed himself to us. And if God relates to us in that way, that means that whatever he does in our lives has a purpose, including our pain. And so when, when the singer says, this I will remember, this will bring me hope, he says, I will remember that God is in a covenant relationship with me. And so all that he does in my life is good. Augustine, the great African theologian, Augustine said of God, he said, you smite so that you may heal. You slay us so that we may not die apart from you. Jerry Bridges, a modern writer, says, God never allows pain without a purpose in the lives of his children. He never allows Satan nor circumstances nor any ill-intending person to afflict us unless he uses that affliction for our good. God never wastes pain. He always causes it to work together for our ultimate good, the good of conforming us more to the likeness of his Son. So the first thing that brings us hope is that we're in a covenant relationship with God. And all that he does, including our pain, including things that are hard and difficult and losses of life, are somehow worked for our good. Have you learned this in your life? Who else has learned that in their lives? A couple people respond right away. But there are more of us here that know this. And I don't mean know it because we know the verse and we've memorized it. I know, I mean, we know it. We get it. This is part of how we relate to God. This is part of how we see life. And if you have not learned this, you probably will. But it's best that you prepare for the time when you will. And the way to prepare is listen to other believers who have learned this already. Hear them talk to you and, tell, and hear them tell you how they have discovered that God is a covenant God who doesn't waste their pain. Pay attention to them. They know because they've learned it. Secondly, we discover the plurality of mercies. So number one, that pain has a purpose. Number two, the plurality of mercies. I love this verse. This passage talks about God's mercies in the plural. Now, when I became a Christian, I knew about God, God's mercy, of course. 
I was taught that this is how you are saved because God is merciful and He gives you mercy. He overlooks your sins. He forgives you. And then you are saved and you walk with Him. I did not know that He had more than one mercy. I only knew of one when I started. But then you grow and you suffer and you lose things and people that are important to you. And you learn that it turns out God has many mercies. That there are multiple mercies that he gives us. They're new every morning. There's a new mercy waiting for you in the morning. As you go through life, it turns out that there's an endless supply of mercies. He has lots of them. And he is willing to share. It's amazing. This is such a cool realization as you grow as a believer and you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought he said one, but he has many. And he gives it to you as you need it. It's like manna, right? That's, that's the correlation here, that every day they're new every morning. That's like manna in the, in the wilderness. When, when the people were wandering in the desert, right, and there's nothing to eat, and God said, every day I'm going to give you food. So you'll wake up and you'll go gather food and then you eat it and then don't hold on to it because the next day you'll have another portion of food and you'll be fine. And if you hold on to it, it'll just rot. So trust me that every day there'll be enough food for you. This is the same idea. Trust him that every day there will be enough mercy for you. There'll be a new mercy. He's called the father of mercies because he begets mercies. See, he just gives birth to mercies. He produces mercies for his people. If you take a lot of medicine, you probably have a box of pills for every day. Some of you do that. And so in the beginning of the week, you maybe put enough in each one, make sure the, it's right. So then every day, you don't have to go through and think all this and break your pills and figure it out. You're ready for the week. Now think about that as God's supply of mercies. God, every week, pulls out his box. And for every day, he's just going to put enough mercies for you. Like a doctor who knows what you need for every day, God knows the mercies you need for each day, and he gives it to you. Number three, we experience God as our portion. So number one, we get hope from knowing that our pain has a purpose. Number two, that there's a plurality of mercies. And number three, that God is our portion. Now let me explain this idea. And for some of you, it's not new. But some, for some of you, it may be new. There's historical background to this. When Israel came into the land, remember God rescued them from Egypt from slavery. And then he says, I'm going to give you land. And when they go into the land, he says, we're going to split it up among the tribes. There are 12 tribes. And so each tribe will get a territory, and that stays in the family. So children get it, their children get it. They never lose that land. So everybody got enough land. It was, it was connected to their clan, to their family, to their tribe. And so they cast lots to figure out who gets what. And so once they figure it out, for example, Naphtali is up in the north. You got Judah in the south. Simeon's got like a little weird thing. If you look at the map, they're just kind of surrounded by Judah. It's really interesting how, how it was allotted, if you look at the map. Manasseh made out really well. 
Two territories on either side of the river. I don't know how that, it must have been a lot of people. And so they did all this, but this one tribe got nothing. The Levites got nothing. And so God tells Aaron, who's the head of the, the tribe of Levi, it's the priestly tribe. They're supposed to work at the temple, bring sacrifices, help people understand God's word. This is their tribe. That's what their job is. They're special. They've been picked out out of all the tribes. Aaron is their leader, and God tells him in Numbers 18, verse 20, he tells Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land. Everybody got their own territory, not Aaron and his family. Neither shall you have any portion among them. Those are called portions of land. And then God says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. God says, I'm not going to give you land, but I'm going to give you me. I will be your portion. Meaning that the land that provides security, the land that provides sustenance, now God will do those things for them. God says, I will be your security. I will be your nourishment. I will provide for you. I will be your safety. No land, but God is their portion. And so knowing that, now you go to Lamentations, and the land is gone. They lost it. They're taken into exile to Babylon. They don't know what's going to happen. The city lies in ruins. The temple is no more. And God says, I am still your portion. Even when there's no land, even when there's no crops, there's no cattle, I will provide for you, and I will be your portion. There are some people in this congregation that when I pray for you, I pray this verse for you. Because I know you have lost a lot. And maybe other people have land or city or temple or whatever, crops. But you don't. And so I pray for you that you will know that God is your portion. That though you have lost much, you can't lose God. He's still your portion. He will be your portion forever. In John 6, there's that peculiar story of Jesus teaching. You remember that he's teaching and he's confusing everybody. He talks about drinking my blood and eating my body. It's just weird stuff. I am the bread from heaven. And everybody leaves. They're just so confused. Like people like, we, we don't understand. And it just, this is getting really weird for us. So they leave. The disciples are there, the inner circle of Jesus. And Jesus asks them, this is John 6, verse 67. He says to the 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? And here's the shining moment for Peter, one of a couple that he has. Simon Peter, right on the spot. This is a great response. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's saying, we don't understand what you're saying any more than these guys who just left. But we have nowhere else to go. You are all that we have. 
And we have come to believe that you are enough. Essentially, he's saying, you are our portion now. We have left everything for you. And now you are our portion. Have you learned that in your life? Have you learned that when you lose something or someone and you grieve and you do it honestly, that there is hope because God is your portion? And by the way, the only way to learn that God is your portion is to lose your land. And when it's stripped away, when things that you had placed your hope in and meaning in and you thought would make you happy, when those things go, and sometimes when those people go, whatever the circumstances are, tragic or not, but when it falls apart, when your life is in ruins, you find that God is sufficient. There's enough of him with his plurality of mercies with his purposes for your life to sustain you. And finally, I'm out of time. We need to finish on the hope that we have through Christ. Because if we are to grieve with honesty and hope, we must set our sorrows with the man of sorrows. To process our loss and our gain, we must pay attention to Christ's loss and to his gain. Isaiah tells us that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He too, like the songwriter of Lamentations, cried over the city. In Matthew 23, we read Jesus' words. He looks over Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Always makes me think of David saying, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. It's the same kind of grief, you know. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. This is very similar to what the author of Lamentations is feeling. He's looking at the desolate, ruined city. Now, Jerusalem is not physically ruined yet, but Jesus knows how this is going to happen. And by rejecting God, they are putting themselves in ruins. And so Jesus, as he's looking over that city, he is contemplating his own loss, of course. Even in our text, if you go, uh, this is in chapter 4, verse 20. In 420 Lamentations, it talks about the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Now they're grieving the loss of their king. They're saying, our king was captured. The anointed of God, the chosen ruler from God was captured. And we hoped that he would protect us. And when you read the early church fathers, they're all relating this to Christ. Because they're seeing the connection of losing your king. They're seeing the connection of Jesus experiencing loss on our behalf. I wonder how the disciples felt when they were at the cross and Jesus is dying. I bet you they may even quoted this verse, saying this is the, the very breath of our lives. And now he's captured and put to death. What did Jesus lose? Well, I would challenge you to come up with something from your life that you lost that Jesus cannot identify with. Leaving his home, complete acceptance of God, 
leaving a certain existence, becoming a human being, experiencing all sorts of broken relationships, abandonment, experiencing all kinds of abuse before the cross, on the cross, dignity taken away, whatever the expectations he had or other people had for his life unfulfilled, losing his health and losing his life. Have you lost anything that Jesus cannot identify with? I don't know. I can't think of anything. And then you look at the cross as a symbol of loss, a symbol of ruin, a symbol of something wasted. Now, what did he gain? What did he sacrifice himself for? The answer is very simple, friends. It's you. It's you. Jesus sacrificed himself for you. Because he sees you as his portion. You know, the Bible talks about God's people as God's portion. Isn't that amazing? Deuteronomy 32, we looked at that song of Moses a few Sundays ago. And there's that great passage there where God says, I have a lot of different borders for different nations, but you, you Israel, are my portion. This is exactly how he feels about you. When he looks at you, he's saying, oh yeah, there's a lot of things I care about, but you, you, I care about supremely. For you, I sacrificed my own life. Man of sorrows. I feel every Sunday I'm quoting this hymn because I feel like it applies so well to everything we're saying when we sing to God and when we're honestly dealing with our grief and we're realizing that God himself and Christ has dealt with the same stuff. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. That's me. I'm a ruined sinner. He came to reclaim, so he was ruined for me so I could be restored. He was lost so I can be found. And that is why, because of Christ, not only do we grieve honestly, not only do we grieve hopefully because we find God in the midst of it, which is also through Christ. But we can also pray for restoration. The book ends, and I'll finish on, on this verse. The book ends on the prayer of this community of believers for God to restore them. Verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. There's a caveat. They're saying, restore us unless you're still angry with us. Unless you have utterly rejected us. Well, we know in Jesus that it is not the case. And so when we pray, Lord, restore my life, my ruined life, with all the losses that I experienced, we can pray in confidence that restoration is coming to us. Because he is not angry with us anymore because Christ paid for my and your sins. So we pray for restoration. We pray for a time when I, I've wrestled with this and I was going to talk more about it except that I can't explain it. So I'm not going to talk much about it because I don't know what to say. But the passage that Kevin quoted in his prayer, that there will be a time when there will be a feast and somehow our disgrace will be taken away and somehow there will be no tears this is as far as I can go with this. I'm sorry. I, maybe I should study harder. 
but I can't say anything else because I don't understand how that works. But somehow, all my grief, all your grief will be healed. Whatever you have wept over in your life will be taken away. And somehow we'll be in this covenant relationship with God where we will know his purposes for our pain and it will make total sense to us and we will say, thank you, Lord, that you did that. Now, we're not there yet. I'm not there yet. But the promise is that we will be. There will be full restoration for his children. And so we long for that. And even as we will come to the communion table and we'll sing, this is a picture of the feast. This is a picture of our tears being wiped away and our regrets being gone, our losses being restored. And so I encourage you to come to his table.